Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let me tell you about Underdog Fantasy. Underdog Fantasy is the best and easiest way to play fantasy football and basketball this season. Just draft. No need to worry about waivers, lineups, or injuries. Underdog Fantasy handles it all for you. Just go to underdogfantasy.com or download the app Draft a season-long best ball team or any of the individual games that you can find, and that's it. No in-season management. You can even bring your own home league over to underdogfantasy.com. Use the promo code 5RSN and you get a 100% deposit match up to $100. That's right. Use the promo code 5RSN and use a 100% deposit match up to $100. Underdogfantasy.com. Sports betting season is in full force. You need a sportsbook with integrity and longevity like BetUS. You may already know this, but BetUS has been pioneers in the sportsbook industry for almost three decades, thriving and paying their loyal customer base. That is BetUS.com. They have loads of bonuses. Join now or call 800-69-BETUS. That is 800-MY-BETUS. And you will receive a 125% sign-up bonus by using the bonus code Five. That's the word five. F I V E. They also have re-up and referral bonuses as well. Follow my lead and open an account with Bet US. You bet, you win, you get paid. Bet US. This show is brought to you by Lewis Peters State Farm, agency representing the number one auto and home insurer in the United States for more than sixty years. Combined experience in the insurance industry. Local agents that understand South Florida's unique market. You have access to them 24-7, walk-in, call-in, click-in through lewispeters.com. You can find them online on social media at SFAgentPeters, or you can call at 305-275-5585. Remember, lewispeters.com. Welcome to Three Yards Per Caddy, a podcast covering the Miami Dolphins and the NFL. Now, here's your hosts, Chris, Alf, and Simon. And we're on, and welcome to another edition of Three Yards for Carry, a victorious edition of Three Yards for Carry. I'm Alfredo Arteaga, Simon Clancy is here, Chris Kaufman is here, and this show is always brought to you by Manscaped. Use the promo code 5RSN, get 20% off your entire order. How are you guys? Good. How are you? I'm I'm doing fine. I'm doing better uh, this week than most weeks. But I'm, yeah, right. But I gotta ask you, Simon, your first impressions of that game on Thursday. Uh, a lot of fun. The first time we've had a, a little bit of fun with this team in, in a long time, maybe since that Raider game last year. But the defense played as designed. And Tua came off the bench and played the hero. Your thoughts? Um, I thought it was a really <laughs> – I'm sorry. I thought it was a really bad game. Uh, it was a bad game of football. Uh, I thought it was, um, you know, 
it wasn't much of a national spotlight. I, I thought the defense was 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 outstanding. I, I thought I really had to question Baltimore's game plan. I've got to say, defensively, I thought Miami played well. It was a great game plan by Josh Boyer um, to blitz so many times—38, 39 blitzes or something ridiculous. Um, I thought Javon Holland stepped up, played really well. Just generally, I thought really good team defense. Uh, offensively, was pretty inept. Um, and it was good to see Tua come off the bench. I didn't think he played particularly brilliantly. I mean, you know, he was the hero in inverted commas. He did a good job. He did what he needed to do. I mean, I'm pretty sure all three of us could have completed the pass to Albert Wilson down the sideline, but he made some nice throws, especially the one dropped into dropped into Jalen Waddle that somebody said to me the other day wasn't wasn't a good throw, wasn't this, wasn't that. Didn't know I didn't know what I was looking at, didn't know what didn't know it was zone, didn't know it was man, whatever. I mean, just there are some fucking half wits out there. Um, but yeah, won the game and won the game nicely and like showed what we could do. People asking, you know, where's that defensive scheme been all season? It doesn't really work like that. You know, you have to have the corners have to be completely healthy. You know, it's a risk. And, you know, for quick decision-making quarterbacks, you know, it wouldn't have worked against Matt Ryan, for example, who's much more ineffective as a runner, but much more effective as a decision-maker. Those sorts of things don't always work against, you know, quick decision-makers who can get the ball out and get you in trouble. Um, but the perfect game plan for the, for the perfect game, and it was nice, nice to win, nice to win on national TV, nice for the, you know, nice for Tua to do some nice things. X had the return, nice to see a couple of rookies playing well, Waddle playing well, Holland playing well. Shame we couldn't get the ball to Gesicki. Running game looked absolutely aids, and Robert Hunt was probably the greatest moment of the year so far. So you know, I'm all about that. <laughs> yeah, Robert Hunt. Yeah, Robert Hunt got a lot of a lot of press. I don't know what he was thinking, he, and and well, he kind of said after the game that he just blacked out and he saw the ball and he grabbed it. You know, but it's really interesting to watch that play. You can see the faces. You can see Miles Gaskin staring at it like, what are you doing? And Gaseki, like, what is going on? And the only people involved are like Robert Hunt and Reader tried to get a block, which was all kinds of ridiculous. And then, of course, the Ravens are like, I guess we got to stop this guy. <laughs> but yeah, uh, hilarious play. Uh, Chris? Um, was it a bad game? It was a bad game for a lot of it. <laughs> I, I the think good bits were beautiful. The, the bad bits were bad. Yeah, uh, the bad bits were pretty bad. Um, you know, especially on offense, the first half. You know, uh, I thought. You know, it, it really depends on what you appreciate because a lot of people, I think most people, really appreciate offensive football, and um, you can't deny though that what was happening for most of the game was a uh, you know more or less a, a defensive masterpiece um they really went on a limb and it worked and you so you have to i think you have to appreciate when that happens when when a, a defense comes in with a plan um you know a risky plan uh and then they're gonna they're gonna make it happen and then it works i think that's really that's a big part of the football um, game as well, it, not just the offense. Certainly on offense, I thought Tua. You know, for a did I think he was really the hero uh, for the game? No, no, not at all. Um, I, I I really did not think so at all that he was a uh, heroic. Uh, that that he had a great, particularly great performance for him. I thought when he got in there, he couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, um, and. I don't know whether that's because uh, of the finger. I don't know whether that's because of uh, his not having taken first any first string reps in the last two weeks uh, prior to the game. Uh, I don't know if it was because he went in cold without really even getting a chance to warm up, uh, if you notice, uh, looking on the sideline and such. Um, 
it could be all of the above, but either way, he wasn't executing the offense. He wasn't able to hit anything, vert, you know, any anything challenging anyway. Um, and for the first two drives, really. And I thought he was going to be safely escorted back to the bench. And we're going to be having a very different conversation about him right now, uh, about how, you know, the, the naysayers are, would be coming, would be out in full force saying it's time. Everybody should admit that he's done, that he's, you know, that he's, he's a bust. We should trade him away. We should go for, you know, I thought, I thought there was a good chance that we could be having that conversation. You know, first two drives couldn't execute anything. Couldn't get those keep the offense on the field. Couldn't, couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, as I said. Um, and then the third drive is when he really executed that. Um, first off, they had that really strange uh, pickle play um, with uh, with Miles Gaskin, which I, I just thought was really uh, was really entertaining. Um, and then that big pass to Jalen Waddle, and it was a perfectly placed pass. And not only that, it he didn't he showed on that pass the velocity that he would normally show without a finger injury. Mm-hmm. You know, and people people you know argue about that. And I'm I'm sorry, I'm not really arguing about opinions here. Um, this is this is measurable. It's and and it's it's the same velocity that he would normally get on that kind of throw. And, um, and it was a, a good velocity. It was very Drew Brees, Tom Brady, like velocity for that, that distance. Uh, it was right there with virtually anybody except for like the Matt Stafford's of the world and the, you know, the Carson Wentz and the, the, those ilk, um, they would have a good, they would have a good lead on, um, on the velocity and of that sort of pass. So, so I, I think that just goes to, to points to Tua as sort of a gamer, like, you know, he gets warmed up and yeah, he's talking about how he can't grip the ball with that broken finger of his, and he can't get under the deep ball the way he likes. But then when he gets into the game moment, um, the big moment, you know, uh, he finds a way to throw it as if the finger, there's no, there's nothing wrong with the finger. Um, and I think that that's sort of the thing that he's been doing, uh, that people don't notice as much. I think it's the thing that he does in the fourth quarter, which is why he has one of the highest fourth quarter passer ratings in NFL history, or at least in modern NFL history. Um, I think that it's one of the reasons that he has, you know, the highest percentage of touchdown, uh, touchdowns per play, you know, of any quarterback in the fourth quarter, as well as any quarterback in the red zone. Uh, in, in modern NFL history, going back to the, to the nineties. Um, so I think that uh, he found his gamer, he found the, the inner gamer in him. And I think that was the positive, but for, there was a good bit of it. You can't forget the initial drives when it, when the game was in the balance and Baltimore could have taken over and wised up to our approach anytime. Uh, and we couldn't get the offense going. And I think, so you have to take the, the bad with the good on that. It wasn't, it wasn't his heroic performance uh, necessarily. I thought on the defensive side of the ball, uh, it was a brilliant game plan against uh, Lamar Jackson because they're figured if you're going to blitz him, you better, you better just, you better just throw everybody at him and make sure that he can't escape East or West or North, you know, keep everybody in the gaps too. Um, and, and so what they forced him to do instead was to go backward. You know, and that's what you saw over and over again in the face of these blitzes is him trying to go backwards and execute. And I don't think Lamar Jackson has and people disagree with me all the time. I I don't let them. I don't I don't care. Um, I don't think that Lamar Jackson necessarily has the arm talent, the arm strength, um, the, the accuracy to consistently execute while moving backward. 
I think some quarterbacks are just comfortable with it. Dan Marino used to be comfortable. He used to do it all the time. Mm-hmm. He used to, you know, it used to be backing up, you know, go back to Jeff George, you know, some guys like that. Um, you go, you look at nowadays with Josh Allen, some, some guys are they're fine backing up because they, they know their arm is just going to keep it, keep them in it no matter what. And so it's a comfort level. And so he wasn't comfortable with the backing up. And it showed and he wasn't able to execute. And um, the other thing is that I think that we, we see we see this every now and then the zero blitz thing. It works better the more you do it like you know, if they did it so much in this game that it made it such a real threat that actually the worst plays that Lamar Jackson had in the game were ones where we didn't blitz. Okay, he was he was eight of 18, uh, it was something like eight of 18 for 80 yards and an interception and, you know, an overall really bad grade um, when we didn't blitz on the 20 plays when we didn't blitz him. I mean, it was it was a really, you know, it's an interesting because we pulled out in the blitz and, and the threat of the blitz was so real because we came so often that, you know, pulling out and disguising, you know, really just confuses the guy. And I think that that's the key takeaway with this zero blitz thing is that you have to do it a bunch, you know, to, to, um, in order for it to be really effective, uh, you have to get, because it gets your players involved. I mean, it gets your players really jazzed up. Javon Holland says it's the most fun he's ever had. I mean, he said he went to a pretty fun college and had some pretty big wins and lots of big plays there. And this is the most fun he's ever had on a three and seven team. Um, you know, so I, I think there's something to that. It gets the players really into it. It also gets the players like if they if they're working with the same construct, which is the, you know, the zero blitz disguise and zero blitz coming versus zero blitz disguise, you know, they're working within the same approach over and over again. They're really allowed to get a feel you know, for what the offense is, is going to do to try to beat it. And then they can, they can play instinctively um, and they can, they can work off of it. And I think that, you know, it, it did a lot of things. It dictated to the offense so that we could get into a rhythm and, you know, punch, counter punch, that sort of thing. Um, it gave the players energy and enthusiasm. It uh, let the players play instinctively. Uh, and then it made the it made the the disguise, you know, when you back up into coverage, it made that all the more deadly because we were coming so often um, and so hard and so heavy. I think that it's something that they've got to explore. It struck me as a lot like the Wildcat development, you know, back in t- 2008, where it's like no, nothing, nothing is new here. The Wildcat was not new, certainly. Um, and, and nothing is new about zero blitz, but, but the frequency and the commitment to it is somewhat new and, um, and the frequency and commitment to, to the zero blitz that Miami had in this game was in, in, I mean, some, some outlets talked about it. Um, it was historical, you know, it was, it was definitely, you could go back a long time and not find that many safety blitzes and, and defensive back blitzes and zero blitzes uh, in a game like that. And I wonder if it's just something that, Hey, we're on a three and seven team and they're just trying to win games now at this point. Like, I wonder if they're going to go ahead and explore it. Even if normally a defensive coordinator would have heartburn about calling all these zero blitzes, because that's how big plays come up. You recall 2019, you know, Brian Flores, first year, the tank play, 
against the um the that we all called you know the tank for two play um it was a zero yeah. blitz and, <laughs> and just the guy just had all the space in the world he just kept running for like a 70 yard the Steelers the 70 yard touchdown or something like that like that's the sort of thing that gives the defensive coordinators heartburn about calling this zero blitz and, you know it's it's like that sort of thing can happen it's it's really a leap of faith but paradoxically, the more you do it, the better you get at it and the more effective it becomes. So it's so really it's, it's going to be interesting to see if they take this leap of faith or if they're like, you know, uh, maybe that worked in this game against this quarterback for whatever this reason is. But it's not going to work against this quarterback. It's not going to work against this quarterback. I, I, I happen to think it could work against more quarterbacks than just just Lamar Jackson. That's my opinion. But um, but we'll see. Yeah, and the way they played him is is also instructive. By, by the way, uh, they blitzed, I believe it was 39 times. The next closest was Vic Fangio earlier this year sent 31 blitzes at Lamar Jackson when they played in Denver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you remember that game, uh, Lamar Jackson, I don't believe, had a very good game, but the Denver offense couldn't get out of its own way, which has been their theme all, all season. But yeah, they played a lot of uh, they played with a lot of inside leverage with eyes in the backfield, and they seemed to know what the Ravens how the Ravens were going to counter. And Xavier Howard even said it like you know we, we could tell when they were running slants, and we knew all their signals for slants. So I just kept jumping one after the other, and he said he was surprised he didn't pick one off. But sure enough, he did break on one and broke it up, picked it up, and ran it in for a touchdown. But yeah, they, they played with a certain disrespect of of Lamar Jackson that only the Titans, I believe, have, have done the same, where they've just dared him to throw to the boundary. And he didn't until he did in the fourth quarter. And then that, that's when they mounted a, a mini comeback. But yeah, on the defensive line, I thought Jalen Phillips, he had a couple of wow plays, Simon. There was one play where he rushed wide, flushed Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson reversed field on him. He fought through two blocks and still got out to the boundary to push him out of bounds for a one-yard gain. Jalen Phillips was coming on. And I don't know what it is, but if you look at the work that they've done on the defensive line inside of three years, two first-round picks, Wilkins, Phillips, a second-round pick in Raekwon Davis, free agency, Emmanuel Ogba, Adam Butler, Zach Sealer. That's really good work on the defensive line. What's wrong with this team that they can't duplicate that elsewhere? Um, that feels like a loaded question. I actually didn't think Phillips played very well beyond that one play that you highlighted. But Ogba played really well. I thought Christian Wilkins played well. I thought Sealer played well. Uh, I thought Jerome Baker played well, and they sort of moved him a little bit outside and played Duke Riley and um, and. Um, God, what's his name? The former Patriot, whose name could be Landon Roberts, um, inside. Um, I don't know, really. Is it personnel? The run fit seemed better than they did earlier in the season. I think a lot of it starts with the secondary as well. You know, the more confidence in Holland playing single high allows people like Brandon Jones and Eric Rowe and and people like that to make plays around the line of scrimmage. Um, And also health. You know, if if you're healthy on the corner, you can match those, those two corners up man on man with whoever they've got. It just allows guys to be free, more free. Um, I, I, Phillips, I've been really disappointed with Phillips as a pass rusher. Um, you know, he doesn't seem, like, like Ogba seems like he gets close and close and close and he gets his hands up and he deflects balls and 
Phillips just doesn't strike me as somebody who's particularly getting any, you know, much more close or much closer to cracking the pass rush code. Um, so we'll have to see. I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe just confidence as well. Um, it's a difficult question to answer. I think um, I think health, like I said, health plays a lot into it. And I, and I did like the fact they just moved Baker around a bit more because you go back three or four weeks and, you know, the run fits were so bad. You know, they could, they were getting run over by, I mean, who was it who had the, the sort of long touchdown run, just ran through Jones, ran through Baker. That's kind of not what you want to see. So um, the big question is, can they, can they do it consistently now? Can they do it, you know, in New York at the weekend against a team that's conceded 45 or more points for three weeks, three out of the last four games? You know, this is a big test against the Jets now. I know that doesn't sound, you know, it sounds a bit of a misnomer, but it is a big test against the Jets. You know, you suspect that, that Zach Wilson will be back. It's on the road. It's against one of your biggest rivals. Um, you know, and a team that's floundering, like I said, has conceded 45 or more points in three of the last four games. This is a, you know, Miami need to go out and make a bit of a statement. They need to stomp on this team's face. And, um, you know, they don't need to be in a situation where it's going up and down the field, scoring and this, that, and the other. They need to make a statement. And that defence needs to step up and, and show Zach Wilson stuff he hasn't seen and confuse him. Because, again, he's not a quick decision maker at the moment. You know, he was in college, but here he's not, or at least he's not He's not a good quick decision maker. He, he can be pressured into bad decisions. And I think with the way that Mike White played yesterday, I think Wilson will start. So I think it's imperative that, you know, there's a good, solid game plan to try and work out what Wilson doesn't do well. And a lot of that is getting pressure on him, keeping him, you know, don't let him get outside onto the perimeter where he makes those off-platform throws um, and just, you know, getting him to make bad decisions. Which doesn't yeah, really Chris, Yeah, Chris, um, how is it that they can pull, I guess, I, I like it. I don't know if Simon likes it as much as I, as I do, but I love the work that they've done building this defensive line. How can they do that and then be so bad on the offensive side? Because it's getting worse week by week, especially with Liam Eikenberg out at left tackle. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know what to do about the offensive line. I think I, I've said this before, you know, when they when their their answer at the offensive line was the left side of Liam Eikenberg at left tackle and the uh, the left guard position, Austin Jackson, I was a little bit discouraged because to me, it's just like just delaying whatever answer you need to find by the end of the year, um, in order to be effective. Um, and, and it's just gonna, it's gonna take them on a, on a detour. Um, and I think we're still seeing that and it's unfortunate. And I, I don't know, you know, that, that, that may ultimately cap whatever try whatever comeback that we're trying to execute here, uh, in, in the latter stages of the season. Uh, not that, you can really come back from three and seven anyway, but um, you know, they are facing the jets and the Panthers and the giants and the jets again. Um, and it's not as if the saints look unbeatable, um, you know, over, so over the next, over the next uh, five games um, really, really all five of them, certainly four out of the five look very winnable, but you know, five of them look winnable um, over the next. And then, and then they're playing the Titans and the Patriots again. They also got, Um, they also got a a crazy amount of help yesterday, which, which is something that they never get. (laughs) Okay. So now there's a bunch of teams clustered. They're essentially, they got to make up two games in eight weeks. It's been done before. Yeah. But I mean, when we're talking about help when you're at three and seven, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
I, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in help except there's the only, the only way you can help three and seven is just to not lose another game for the rest of the year. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the only, that's the only thing that you can do. And, and the odds of that are just, um, just astronomical at this point. But um, so the offensive line, yeah, they're, they're bad. They have a bad, they have a bad um, model, uh, I think of what an offensive lineman should be. Um and it shows continuously um, the defensive line, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm not necessarily ready to, to sing the praises of the defensive line. I think Simon makes a good point that Jalen Phillips is um, he's not getting in there for pressures as often, as often as I would like to see. And I, I realize this is not the approach that just lets him pin his ears back um, as much but then again, there's times that he can, and uh, we're still. Uh, to me, I'm still waiting for that that light to come on. I don't. I don't think he's um, starring yet by any means. Um, I think that if you look at, uh, thing, which is a good thing though, isn't it? Because you go back and look at his Oregon tape, and you're like, this kid is a stud. And whilst he's right. playing for us, there's still clearly more of a ceiling for him to get to, which is a great thing. Right? Are you talking about Jalen Phillips? Uh, no, I'm talking about Javon Holland. Sorry. Oh no, I'm talking about I'm talking about Jalen Phillips. Like right, Jalen so. Phillips is not like I didn't think. I don't think he's been great yet. No, I, don't I think you're right about Holland. I think that there is still another level that he can get to, um, and that's that's one thing. Um, but as far as the defensive line, uh, you, you know, there's some things going on there. I like Christian Wilkins. I think he's having an all right year. I think that um, that you know, service like Pro Football Focus might be. Um, overstating him just a little bit you know i watch I, I hate to go back to the jeffrey simmons question you know whether one or the other but when you watch one play and you watch the other play it's a little bit different to me um and i think that uh we have this they have this uh this fascination with adam butler and he does make some good plays but at the same time zach sealer I, I to me in my eyes is a better player maybe even a better player than Christian Wilkins at times. And, um, and he plays hardly any snaps, it seems from, for a lot of these games, uh, Emmanuel Ogba is having a genuinely good, I think year. Uh, and he is the best defensive lineman that we have, um, on the team. And I think that he would be good in a lot of, on a lot of teams in a lot of settings, but Jalen Phillips hasn't quite come on, come on, uh, yet, he will, I think, eventually. Um, so I'm not, I'm not ready to say that this defensive line, like we've built, like like we've built the Tampa Bay defensive line that won the Super Bowl last year. No, we haven't done that. You know, um, we were on the way, maybe, but uh, I'm not sure about that. The offensive line, uh, you know, if you're you're juxtaposing those against one another, you know, the uh, offensive line is obviously trash. Um, and, and it's an unfair comparison against whatever you're comparing it to. But, um, but yeah, so I, I think, I think the story of this and, and most Dolphins fans sense it is, is really about not Jalen Phillips. It's about Javon Holland. Um, that's, that's the story that's emerging from amongst the, the rookies, particularly the defensive rookies. Um, and, and I think that it's going to continue to emerge that way. Yeah, as far as uh, quarterback pressures, Jalen Phillips has 21 for the season, which is 39th amongst all edge players. Uh, Owe of uh, Baltimore has 24. He leads all rookies. Aziz Ojolari has 21, so he has the same as Phillips. 
Greg Rousseau has 17. But yeah, he... but he's the yeah, that's that's misleading though, because Jalen Phillips, Jalen Phillips has a whole lot of pass rush reps. Yeah, you know, and and so like his 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 pass I mean his pressure percentage is is like eight percent. It's it's low. All right. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's that's not. I mean, I, I happen to I've compiled these for many years, and so I have a good um, context for all this. That's low. That's low for anybody. That's you know even for um, it's not pathetic. It's but it's it's low. And, um, and I think that if you're comparing it to, uh, what is it, Jason, uh, his new name um, escapes me, uh, Jason yeah, Oway. Yeah, yeah. What's his name again? Odafe. Odafe. Odafe Oway. I mean, if you're comparing that to, to him, uh, his pressure percentage is, is much higher. It's like, it's like 11% or something like that. And, and so I think that, yeah, um, we're not there with Jason and Jalen Phillips yet. He's he's physically he's a physically superior guy, and we have reason to believe he'll get there. But he's not there yet. Yeah, well, what's and I guess it's because he plays with the Giants. But I had no idea Aziz Ojolari was having such a good season with the Giants. He's having a monster year, like defensive rookie of the year type of year. If who'd have thought a New York team would be like you know we're we're like talking about them like like they're the like they're the Colts or something like I don't know if it's because he plays with the Arizona Cardinals but we never hear about them you know like like that that's the New York Giants and and we're like well you never hear anything about him because he plays for the Giants it's like wow yeah but yeah he showed up now let's talk about the elephant in the room Uh, Simon our, our coach either doesn't like the quarterback. Or he's or he he had a terrible evaluation these past two weeks because Tua at and I think uh, I forgot who was it that said it best on he said it on one of the national shows that Tua at seventy percent is better than Jacoby Brissett at a hundred percent but this is just a screw up another screw up by this by this coach and this coaching staff to not play him these past two weeks and and then you have like that that whole episode on the sideline where Brissett gets upset and then Flores, uh, you know, in, in a stern way tells him to sit down Tua comes in and plays fine. You know, eight completions for 158 yards. You'll take it all the time. And then the touchdown, the to cap it. So what do you make of that whole mess? Um, uh, is it a mess? Or are we just making too much of it as we like to? I don't think he could have played last week. I don't think he could have gripped the ball. He said even in after the post game against Baltimore, he was struggling. He was in a lot of pain. His finger hurt. He couldn't grip the ball properly. I mean, the coaches have got to make the best decision for the team, right? You know, they've got to. They can't make the best decision for fans that like one guy over another. That's not how it works. Um, and they they can ultimately only be the ones that judge this. I'm told that Tua did a workout at the facility across the street from the stadium uh, beforehand and wasn't amazing by any stretch of the imagination and said there was pain in his finger. Um, and at that point, you've got to kind of think, do we go with the guy that's 70% or do we go with the guy that won last week? Um, and I think, you know, you can't blame them for going with the guy. You, whatever you think of Jacoby Brissett, he, you know, is a previous starting quarterback in the NFL. The fact that then Tua was out there throwing balls around and looking okay in the warm-up in, in the stadium, that's another thing. But 
lest we not forget, as Chris made the point, it, it wasn't like Tua came in and was vintage Peyton Manning or vintage Ham Rogers. You know, he couldn't hit the side of a barn door to start. I mean, he had the first throw was nice, a little out just to get him all up. The second throw, he threw about three yards behind Gasicki, you know, and it, he was wide open. Like, dude, what the fuck? So I don't know. It's um, and the you know how many times we've seen players on the sideline getting pissed at you know decisions that coaches make. Jacoby Brissett got you know. Is a 70% to a better than a 75% Brissett? Yes, he is. So I think I understand why Flores made that decision. But um, but yeah, I, I it's really hard as fans to be able to call into question some of those decisions when you're not there every day. You don't know what the doctors have said. You haven't seen the reports. You haven't spoken to her. You haven't seen his finger. You haven't seen him grip the ball. You haven't seen all these things. I personally am happier that it was set up the way it was, that he came off the bench in a tight game, he did what he needed to do and won the game on national television. You know, was he a hero? No. But did he contribute massively to winning the game? No, but he contributed enough for... And he, he changed the narrative, though. Yeah, I mean, he, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. He contributed enough for that narrative just to change just a little bit, just to move just a little bit. You heard some of the national guys, I watched Good Morning Football the next morning, you know, the Peter Schragers and the Kay Adams and the Carl Brands, and I think it was Nick Mangold who were on the show, you know, were talking up what he did. And, you know, he didn't need to come in and do too much, but what he did, he did okay, he did enough, you know. So, uh, and, and with that cumulative defensive effort that helped us get across the line, it was enough. You know, it was enough. Um, so... I don't know. I don't think he could have played against Houston if, what, five days later, he, he's struggling to grip a football three hours before kickoff, you know, and then talking after the game about how sore his finger was and how he got jammed up a couple of times. And, you know, it's, um, it, I think it's a really difficult one for us fans to make, like I said, because we just don't know. We're just not there. We just don't know what's going on. We, you know, you can't see the finger. If the guy can't grip the ball, he can't grip the ball. And you just don't want to be a head coach to go out on national TV. And your quarterback goes out in the first throw he throws under a bit of pressure because he can't grip it properly. He's just, you know, an absolute duck that just gets walked in for a pick six. And you're just like, what the fuck? And you have to bench him. You look even more of a clown. So, I don't know. It's a it's a really difficult one. For yeah. me, I think. For me, I think that um, I do think he could have played either either or both games. Personally, um, I think the fact that he. The fact that they they dressed him and put him as the backup. Of the, listen, if he can't grip the ball and he really can't execute like like the way that they're saying, and Tua Tua has a tendency to you know toe the line, um, and so he's oh I, after the game I can't grip the ball I couldn't couldn't really do it you know I, I don't know he's he's kind of he, he has a tendency to but I, I look at things like like that exchange that uh, that Landon Roberts had with him on the sideline and and also sort of Tua's you know affect as he's saying these things. And, um, and I don't know, I, I think that, I think there's a possibility that, um, that he could have played either one of those games, especially seeing as how they dressed him, they dressed him and made him the backup. And then not only they dressed him and made him the backup, but like, like Jacoby Brissett was benched in this game. Let's not, let's not sugarcoat it. I, Brian Flores had no idea the extent to which Jacoby Brissett was injured or would be effective because he didn't let him get back out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like we can say, oh, Jacoby Brissett was 70 percent, you know, or something. Nobody knows that. Absolutely. Nobody knows that because there was no there was no warm up. There was no practice. There was no no there was no nothing to to assess what Jacoby Brissett was. For all we know, he was he was 100 percent. He would have gone back out there and been 100 percent. Brian Flores sat him and said, no, you're not going back out there. 
And he did it at a time when Tua couldn't hit the broadside of a barn door. So, you know, he can come after the game and be like, you know, oh, well, Tua hit some good passes. And I thought, Let, let's let's just go. Let's just keep going with him, you know. And and, um, and, and, and he could say that. But at the time that he told uh, Jacoby to sit the sit the F back down, like Tua was not executing the offense. So this was a decision that over the first half, we had stuff left on the field. And this is really two weeks in the running. Um, there's stuff left on the field. Jacoby Brissett is not getting it done. He is not executing the offense. He is not putting points on the board. Um, and and so we're done here. And the the, the knee the the little injury that he took uh, during the game was just an excuse. Was was a good excuse, a good opportunity to say, you know what? No, um, you're good. You no, you're good. Um, and, and so I think that, uh, because when you look at that decision that he made and then turning to Tua, that is, that is an admission that Tua easily could have started that game. And he made, you know, he, I'm sure he had the, the, the reasons that he had, and I'm sure he did amongst those reasons were, you know, yes, Tua has this injury and we're not sure that he can really throw the ball as well as he could, but also implied in that is, is the, the, the saying, you know, as they, they talk about a 70%, is a 70% to a still better than, than a 100% Jacoby percent. Well, in their eyes, no, no, that's not the case. And the reason that they believe that is because of a fundamental underestimation of Tua Tungabailoa and a fundamental overestimation of Jacoby percent. And I will, I will continue to insist that because I watch the games and I watch Jacoby Brissett play football and he does not play football well. Okay. And, and I think that, uh, I think that to a tongue of Iowa, you watch the games and he, he showed it himself. Yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't hit anything in those first two drives, but what is he? He's a gamer. He warmed up and then forgot the finger even existed and, and throws a beautiful, you know, 46 yard strike to, uh, to Jalen Waddle. And then follows it up with more good passes. I mean, this is this is what he does. And if you're watching the games and you're paying attention to when he's doing it, how he's doing it, what he's doing it, then I think that you start to get this better opinion of him. But they haven't gotten there yet. They haven't gotten there with Tua Tonga Vailoa. And uh, and there could be reasons for that. Football coaches always have reasons. I mean, football coaches always have reasons and they have knowledge and they know they know much more than we do. We always have to keep that in mind. That doesn't mean they're wise, you know, and I think wisdom is different from knowledge. And so I think that, yes, he could have played the games. Um, they made a choice. I think they made a choice in this game in particular that was proven wrong to be the wrong choice um, as the game went on. And I think that um, now, now we're going to see how it comes up. But I do appreciate exactly what Simon described. The situation and the circumstances and the way it played out helped to change the national narrative. And he needed to change the national narrative. Like, it had gone against him. It has been gone, going against him really since, since Brian Flores benched him twice in, in 2020. Um. You know, that's it's been going against him ever since. And he needs to do things that change that narrative. Unfortunately, he's behind the worst offensive line that we have ever seen the Miami Dolphins field. And he's often out there with um, with a wide receiver unit that is, you know, that is without Devontae Parker, without Will Fuller. That is, you know, basically a, a backups unit 
Um, plus Mike Gesicki, who's, you know, Mike Gesicki and Jalen Waddle, who's a rookie and who can't get on track yet. Um, so I think that he can't, in, in many ways, it's really, it's really asking way too much for him to change the national narrative with this team around him or with this unit around him and these play callers and, and all the things that are going against him. Um, but he did need to find a way to change the national narrative and, and somehow, well, I get, he kind of did, you know, he kind of did in this game and I'm, I'm happy for it. What I will say as well is that he enlivened that stadium and that sideline. Yes. More than I've seen in a long time at any Dolphins game. And look, I know that, you know, we've not played very well, but there's more juice on that sideline when he came in and there was much more juice in that stadium when he came off the bench than I've seen at a Dolphins game in a long time. And that is to be applauded because it shows, especially the stuff on the sideline, shows what he means to that team. Yeah, and we're about 107, I did the numbers, we're about 117 pass attempts away from what is a sample size large enough to evaluate what a, a season under Tua Tungvaloa will look like. So we're about 117 pass attempts away, okay? to actually look at those numbers. And I think when we do that, we're going to be a bit surprised. All right. That's I don't, it. Think, I don't think you judge by numbers, though. Well, uh, good numbers are good numbers for, for a rookie quarterback, Simon. Like, you know. He's not a rookie quarterback. And... Well, but but J- Justin Herbert was, was judged on numbers, was he not? He I mean, it's not as if he was judged on winning. And Joe, Burrow, and Joe Burrow is putting up good numbers in two parts. Because remember, he missed half of the season last year. So he's right. the one who's actually, you know, him and, and Tua are actually going side by side, game for game. Although he's playing more than Tua by this point. And he's playing better, let's be honest. Yes, he has. No, he, he's played better. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say this too loud, but Joe Burrow's playing better than Justin Herbert this year too. But all right, that's it. There is no more. Uh, next time we talk to you, we'll talk about Jets, Dolphins. Dolphins have a, an opportunity here. Let's see if they could capitalize. But till then. Thanks for listening to Three Yards Per Caddy. You can subscribe via iTunes, on Podbean, or your usual podcast provider. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.